When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to the family with Doug Sprinthal and sitting in for Andy Cassie Schrader. Andy probably said next week. Uh, of course, Mike Galvan's with us. You there, Mike? Oh, Tom, I'm here, but I'm playing in pain. Yeah, you mean like my entire career? <laughs> well, some of which I provoked, but. Uh, well, yes, you know. But uh, no, it's just, uh, I tell you. Yeah, I overextended myself a little bit, and I'm paying the price. Okay, why don't we, that's the promo, and then we'll come back and talk about it right after this with the band. Doug Sprinthal, Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. Well, we've been talking about this, and it seems timely to talk about Walzer to you. We started it in the early days of the pandemic, pandemic, and it was so popular, we've continued it. So basically, if you're within 30 miles of a Walzer dealership, and you need service, you can set an appointment. We'll come pick up your car, service it, drop it off, and just charge you up the butt. No, I'm just kidding. It's normal pricing. All the delivery charge you stuff. Charge up the butt, really. That's one of our new marketing slogans I thought we'd try out. I'll charge you up the butt. Now you know yeah, why I'm not in marketing anymore. Well, that's true. It's a very good point you're making. It also works for sales. If you want to have a car dropped off to test drive, you can do that. Just go to walzer.com for the details. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Uh, we're just trying to represent people who have been injured through no fault of their own. We're trying to talk to them before they talk to an adjuster or before they take a settlement that isn't something they should get based upon their injuries. How many people are out there in different, not in the law business, that love to run around scaring people before you even get to them? Well, adjusters will want to settle cases right. and they want to close files. So based upon that, they do what they have to. Um, I think there's a lot of circumstances where they probably act as attorneys where they're not attorneys and they try yeah. to explain people's rights or they give them a certain view that if they look at it. And what I always say is this, if the adjuster really truly thinks the offer they made makes sense, they'd have them come see us. You know, And that's exactly my my question is, you have to understand who has the best, your best interest in mind, correct? Well, you want to know what your rights are. You know, whether yep. or not you decide yep. you're going to hire us or not, that's a choice. It's a free consultation, and you want to understand what your, all your rights are and what coverages you have. And plus the fact, I hang out with you, so you got to be a good guy <laughs> if I'm hanging out with you. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. We are back. 
I just got a, we have a very special guest coming up. Mike's got a story to tell, but I got to read this because there's a picture of Jacob Fry. And I don't know Jacob Fry. Jacob, what's the number here again? Well, I forgot. Five, six, one. Two eight four zero six one. Yeah, there you go. So Jacob, call in. I know you listen. So uh, it's it's not a negative thing. I just love. There's a picture of Jacob Fry, and again, I don't know Jacob Fry, but you know, whatever. I I know people who know him who really like him. I know that. Reelected as mayor, Fry calls. Now this is Fry saying this. Okay. Re-elected as mayor, Fry calls election a turning point for Minneapolis. Oh, jeez. Oh, is that right, Jacob? You're the turning point, are you? <laughs> well, he what? He did win handily. Well, it wasn't even oh, close. Did he? Yeah. Uh, did they even bother run any other people other than Democrats in those deals? No, they had. I he was imagine. running against two Democrats, and I don't right. think the DFL endorsed any of the c- candidates, including him. Oh no, which is that isn't right? that oh, unusual? No, but. I suppose that's true. But in any case, so Jacob Fry is going to be your uh, stay as your mayor. And was, I've never met Jacob, but I was invited to a party that he was going to be at, but then it turned out I couldn't go. So I'm, one of these days I'll run across him, I'm sure. A certain Italian guy from you know, Philadelphia to, uh, tell me, tells me that he's... to cover the election. Oops. No, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, you know, I used to cover City Hall. Yeah, right. That's when I first met you, I think. journalism days. And uh, it, one of the one of the elections that I covered, there was a, a token Republican candidate, uh, a professor, a guy by the name of Hathaway, a professor at the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. and uh, he was upset because he felt that we weren't giving him enough coverage, and uh, you know, we was, mainly he was upset at me. Um, well, the guy didn't do that much campaigning, but uh, but it's, he's probably right. I could have invented some stories about him. Even then, there was no way that, that a Republican could win, but that was besides the point. Right. So uh, one day, in the in the midst of his uh, chagrin, he uh, he calls he calls a press conference, sends out press releases, and the re- the headline of the release is, "When dog bites man, it's not news, but when man bites dog, that's news." An old aphorism, I guess. So then he went on to say that he was on, on Saturday afternoon, you know, a good day because there's no news on Saturday. Saturday afternoon, he was going to uh, have a press conference, at which time he would make news with his uh, pet uh, shepherd, right? Uh-huh. So uh, I didn't bother covering it because uh, they didn't want to pay me overtime, and so they sent a reporter over there, and the reporter... The reporter did a story about him biting his dog, uh, gently biting his dog, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, a couple of days later, I write a, an analysis of the election, how it's going, how the, how the campaigning is going. And I say that uh, that uh, Hathaway has been, uh, has been uh, so desperate for coverage that he actually uh, called a press conference, uh, which he bit his dog. Well, he demanded a correction. In fact, he demanded a retraction because he said he did not bite his dog. He said he only pretended to bite his dog. So this is where it gets good. He talks to the guy who was the reader's representative at the time, not my dad. My dad became reader's representative later. But this reader's representative spent like four hours at the, uh, at the uh, WCCO-TV studios watching tape to try to determine whether it was a fake bite or a real one. Oh, my God. 
uh, I said, kind of beside the point. <laughs> it really is. I said, oh, God, Mike. I, oh, I and he just, you know, he was just the, the poor guy. He, 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 he just uh, bent over backwards. He, he spent all day, and he didn't know what to do. And finally he decided they would write a clarification and uh, because it was just impossible to determine. Right. So I think, okay, well, this is cool. Maybe I can do a little follow-up on this. So I call, I call Hathaway, and I, uh, I say, hey, you know, I just wanted to follow up on this. You know, I, I think that seems like we're still, it's still uncertain whether you bit the dog. I wonder if you have any comments. He said, ah, I don't want to say anything to you. You know, you haven't been good to me. And I okay. said, well, look, I said, just give me a little statement, and um, I'll just print it verbatim as long as it's short enough. He said, all right, let me think. Okay, 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 yep. I'm going to give you a statement. You print it word by word. Every word has to be exactly what I said. I said, sure, that's fine. Cleared his throat. He said, at no time did I place any part of that dog in my mouth. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> okay. And naturally, they wouldn't let me do the story. No, of course they didn't. <laughs> no, not kind of a humorless bunch there. Well, ladies and gentlemen... Uh, to follow the lead of Mayor Jacob Fry, uh, this is going to be a turning point for the Tom Bernard podcast. John Vandemore, the turning point. Do you want to be the turning point, John? Sure, I can be the turning point. I like it. Uh, the, the, uh, the mayor just got reelected in Minneapolis, and he said, and I don't know him. He seems like, like I said, I know people who know him. They like him, say so he's a nice guy and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm not ripping him, but he did say that him being reelected re is a turning point for Minneapolis. Well, you're already mayor, so <laughs> how big a turn is it going to be? So, John, you're going to have to make a big turn in this show because we need to head down the right direction. John Vandemore, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Rigged Justice, How the College Admissions Scandal Ruined an Innocent Man. Oh, my, this is not good news, John. What's this all about? Yeah, so my book is about my story uh, through the Varsity Blues scandal and how Stanford and the justice system um, really got me caught up in a situation that was impossible for me to forward on. John, it's amazing to me. So your job, you were, you were the sailing coach at Stanford University, is that correct? That's correct, yep. Hot. Man, that's like a job you don't want to lose, John, I wouldn't think. Holy Hannah, what, that had to be a great job, man. It was. It, it was certainly a dream job, yeah. So how, how, where did you first hear about this? What happened? How did you even get involved? The sailing coach, how did you get involved in all this? I know it. It, uh, it still feels unbelievable, and certainly unbelievable to to me to be a sailing coach involved with this. But it all started with uh, with Rick Singer um, and oh, him yeah. uh, confronting me and coming out to me. Um, and in really, when I worked with Rick Singer, uh, it was a completely innocent situation. It was you know him trying to find me recruits. Uh, then it became him becoming a donor, uh, which I thought coming from him uh, personally, not from anybody else. Right. And uh, then it all came to a head one morning when uh, at seven in the morning when the FBI and IRS showed up on my doorstep oh. um, and started questioning me. I imagine you must be the first sailing coach that the FBI has ever interrogated. Uh, yeah, I would imagine, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's true. I actually hope that's true. <laughs> not a profession that one would associate with law breaking normally, right? 
Well, you wouldn't think. No, you know? no, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, and why? So he did he just approach everybody in you know the, 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 we got the sailing coach, we got the, this coach, we got the that. Did he approach the entire coaching staff or uh, one by one? How did he do this? So I don't know, and that is actually a really confusing part. So what Stanford yeah. has said, and that's all I can speak to is with Stanford, is that uh, he approached, he talked with or worked with seven coaches at Stanford over 10 years, but apparently I was the only one that did anything wrong with him. Um, so it's uh, it's an interesting play, who knows. But certainly he was involved with lots of different sports and a ton of different universities all throughout the country. Yeah, that's what I've come to understand. And... The weird thing for me, John, now I'm, this is just I'm putting myself in his position. So I'm going to go to a bunch of Hollywood kind of semi-stars. Not I mean, There were a couple of big stars in there, but kind of semi-stars. And I'm going to tell them that I can get their kid into college if they give me enough money. And I don't know if you've ever met an actor, John, but they're not the most uh, trustworthy people I've ever met in my life. It seemed weird to me that he would entrust people who basically lie for a living. It's, yes, a lot of this seems really weird. That's why I never thought it was this or anything that could be this. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's really weird that that's where he did this. And also on the other side, you know, if you're Felicity Huffman or Larry Laughlin and you have millions and millions of dollars, why don't you just donate the millions of dollars to the school outright and get your daughter into school that way. Yeah. Uh, and not have to work with Rick Singer at all. Because they would have let him in, right, John? I mean, if you donated enough dough, pretty much any university is going to let your kid in, I would think. Right. I mean, the schools obviously claim that that's not what they do, but yeah. we all know that's what they do. I mean, but, all those name buildings are there, right? So it, they could have just donated. But what Rick Singer's argument was that he could do it for cheaper. But he couldn't. Not well. He claimed that, but yeah. So we found out it wasn't really that much cheaper. <laughs> what an amazing story! How you sit at home if you're Rick Singer, and maybe you're lying in bed one night, or you woke up early one morning, and you're laying there, they're going, "Hey, here's a way I can avoid work for the rest of my life." I mean, that had to be what his driving force was. I imagine is just how he could make out and make all this money, and then he'd just disappear, and that'd be the end of it. Well, you know, I think he, he found, so obviously he's driven by his ego and right. he wants to have that stroke constantly. And, you know, he found this real weakness with all the, all these parents trying to get their kids into college and are really concerned about what college, you know, what name it has to be on. And he found this weakness with all these parents to say, oh, I can get you into this college and, and this is how you do it. And they, you know, bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, they, and obviously he was successful. He did get them into school. Uh, I want to read something, and I, and I want to hear your take on this whole situation because it's, uh, boy, what a story. Early one morning, everything came crashing down when Vandemore, uh, still in his pajamas, opened the door to find the FBI and the IRS agents on his doorstep. I want to shut up and just, what happened then, John? My, that was a little shocking, I bet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, not not how I pictured my morning going that morning. Um, yeah, it, it was it was incredible to open the door. It was uh, you know very surreal to see them in their pantsuits. You know these two women showing badges, and I have a, at the time it was a one and three year old, um, so I'm like covered in 
you know, whatever we tried to have for breakfast that morning. And I left them in, and I have no idea what this is about, right? Like, I nothing. I'm the sailing coach. What, what do right. I have right. to think about? I've not thought that I did anything wrong whatsoever. But there's a lot of other things happening at the same time. There's the, the basket, basketball FBI case that's going on. So I was like, oh, maybe they want to ask me about that. Who knows? Right. Right. So I do what I thought was the right thing and invite them in, offer them coffee and water and have them sit down. And for about an hour, it was just talking about the admission process. It wasn't really getting to the heart of the matter. And then all of a sudden, they started talking about Rick Singer. And really, I thought that they wanted me to be, Rick had done something wrong, and they wanted me, they were getting background, or they wanted me to witness against Rick. Until towards the end of the conversation, they started accusing me of taking bribes. Um, And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I asked them, what law could I have possibly broken? I I don't understand this. and they got really upset with me uh, and yep. said that I was a horrible person and, and I've done all these bad things. Uh, and then I asked them at the end, I said, so are, am I under arrest? Like, what's going on here? And they said, oh, no, no, nothing. But it's probably a good idea to get a lawyer. And my response was that, you know, I'm a sailing coach. I've never had a lawyer in my life. Um, I don't think I even know one. And so they and I don't have any money for one. So they offered me a public defender, and that's how the case started. Um, but it was a moment I'll never forget. You know, John, it's so interesting. While listening to you, I thought back several years ago, uh, nothing ever came of it, but uh, I was visited by the FBI on a, uh, on a theft case. Not that I stole anything, but somebody I knew, apparently. Not, not a friend, but somebody I knew had been stealing money or whatever. And the weird part of this is she comes, it's a woman, in a pantsuit, by the way, John, so maybe it's the same FBI agent you had, I don't know. But she shows up in this, yeah. this pantsuit, and for some reason, about halfway through, she, she got a little weird with me, right? I mean, a little strident, I guess, is the best. And I didn't do anything, I, you know, whatever. Like you, you're going, well, I didn't do anything, so I'm yeah. sitting there, and I didn't do anything. I wasn't involved in this whole deal, um, whatever. And there was a pause, and she says to me, because I also do a, a morning talk show in town on the radio in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, I have for 35 years. All of a sudden, she looks at me and goes, you know, I'm not a fan of your show. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, why would you even bring that wow. up? I would, yeah, but, John, that attitude that the, they, they got with you, that's the exact same attitude she got with me. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Why? That's a weird thing they do. Why do they do that? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it, from what I've learned uh, through this, and I, I kind of wish I'd never learned this, but really, for my case in particular, I was sunk the, le- the second I let them in the door um, oh. because they don't do tape recordings. Um, all they do is take their own notes. And so if I went to trial, then it's myself against, of course, every FBI agent is decorated, um, would go up and it would be my, my take against their notes. And they could write whatever they want in it. And it was clear, especially when they were really pushing me, that they wanted to put in their narrative and their set of facts and not necessarily what the truth was. Um, it was my impression that they weren't right. really that interested in it. They wanted me just to agree to their truth, and that was it. But, John, you, you already mentioned this. You didn't have any money, so what were they going to get from you anyway? I mean, wh- how, how, why would they go after you? Because I work for Stanford, and this was their way to attack Stanford. 
Well, didn't Stanford jump up and say, hey, we got we got to take care of John here. Uh, Mr. Vandemore needs to be taken care of. Did, didn't the university step up and help you? Not at all. Oh, In fact, God. they did the opposite. Um, uh, they reached out, the FBI and IRS reached out to, to Stanford first. And basically, I have no idea and we'll never know how that conversation went, but basically convinced them to testify against me in a grand jury. And so they basically the way the FBI left is that I couldn't speak to Stanford and explain it and talk this through. Um, you know, I was an 11 year employee. I didn't for everybody's admission. I didn't take any money myself. So I'm the, the different coach from everybody else. So obviously I don't have any malice here. <laughs> you know, I'm not taking money, everything, you know, as my judge put it, all the money went to my victim, which has got to be the weirdest fraud case in history. Um, so it's I'm stuck in this place, and Stanford basically just thought that was this was the easiest way out of this whole scenario is just basically throw me under the bus and say it's all me. This one coach did it, and that's it. I, I still understand why Stanford said you did nothing. Why why didn't they defend? That's weird that they wouldn't defend you. Yeah, and it is, and I think what we look, well, what I look to it, and I could never prove it, but there is lots of connections with Rick Singer in Stanford itself. Oh, um, God, there you from go. From the athletic director um, saying that he knows Rick when I first brought the first check from Rick to, to him, um, and to a men's basketball coach being the first one who basically called me and emailed me following up on recruits that Rick was uh, sending me saying, hey, you should work with this guy. I just want to make sure everything's going well. Um, it was clearly the guy that sent it to me. Um, and these guys are both still at Stanford and, in fact, have gotten promoted. Um, and, you know, the Stanford decided to protect them and eject me. So, John, I, I don't know how it feels, but I can kind of imagine you're just doing your job, like I said, the sailing coach at Stanford, what a great job it is, a great university, beautiful area in which to live. You got it all made, and because you tried to help somebody out, you got screwed. Right. I just tried to do my job. Yeah, you tried to do your job. That's exactly right. I, I really, so basically you just explained it to me. Stanford went after you to try to cover their own butt. Basically, oh, they'll go after John. They'll maybe leave us alone then. They just threw you under the bus. Right. So what what can you do now? Where do you stand now, John? Because that was a few years ago. So where do you stand now? So now I I finished all my my penalties. Um, unfortunately, I will be a felon for the rest of my life. Um, but I've uh, my career as a college sailing coach is over. Uh, it was really over the second this case became public. Um, but I've moved on to. I work as an engineer in Half Moon Bay, California. Um, I work in engineering, drinking water, and you know, surrounded myself with people that I can trust and are loyal to me, and I'm loyal to them, and just part of a, a new small community. And that's how I like it. I, I don't want to work for a large corporation ever again. I certainly understand that, John. I, I, I and I, I, you know, as a one human being to another, one American to another, I'm sorry this happened to you. There was no excuse for what they did to you. Thank you. 
It's all true. The book is called Rig Justice of the College Admission Scandal Ruined an Innocent Man's Life. John Vandemort's V-A-N-D-E-M-O-E-R. John, thank you for your time today, sir, and I, and I hope life gets better, pal. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, John. John Vandemort, ladies and gentlemen. So, Mr. Gelfan. Yep. What do you think of that story? Well, you know, that whole scandal was so bizarre. I, as I understood it, you know, he, he definitely he definitely didn't, it wasn't like he accepted any money. Right. But as I understand it, he was essentially accused of, of helping to funnel the money through the donor, you know, funneling it to the university. Right. Which, uh, you know, it seems like, it seems like uh, you could argue was a, was a bad decision on his part, maybe just naivete, but, mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't seem like he's, you know, he's actually a felon. He shouldn't have been a felon. I wouldn't think so. No, you know, you've been in prison. How was that, Mike? <laughs> just kidding. Tom, it's, it's hell. It's hell. And, but I'll tell you, the thing I did the first day, first day that I was in prison I just I just went out I found the, the the biggest guy I could find he was about a 340 pound guy sure. he was uh he was it had he was actually the head of the Aryan nation well, of course uh, big, big with Jews I know that and I just beat the crap out of him I knew it you had Everybody to show left me alone after that yeah you had to show him that you were the boss that's what you have to do, Tom. You just can't That's be true. afraid of these people. What, what was, your, actually what was, was your prison nickname, Mike? Oh, <laughs> um, uh, let's see. What would have been my prison nickname? Uh, I think. I think anyone anyone who can use a word over four syllables is called the professor. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, now that's very negative, but fun. You know, so, I, I was doing a story once on. Um, it, it was a, it was a court case. That in I think some prisoners, uh, some prisoners were suing to get better food. So Miles Lord, you remember Miles Lord? Oh, sure. absolutely. Taconite the great mining. judge, and in, 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 in his chambers, of course, I, I was married. He, Miles Miles Lord was sort of a renegade judge, and he right, uh, he right. officiated in in the in the uh, marriage ceremony, and um, I I once lamented to him that that. Uh, it was just my luck that in all the years he was on the bench, the decision he made for me was the only one that wasn't overturned. <laughs> By the way, uh, I've already gotten several text messages about you being in prison, and it said, I'm, <laughs> I'm envisioning Mike Gelfand as cage to heat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Well, you know, the thing is, the thing I got tired of were, was, were all the love letters that were being sent sure. to followers. Certainly. You know, it was kind of it's kind of like the Manson syndrome, you know. Yeah. Oh God. But, yeah. but I did I did when I was doing this story I did get to take a tour of the C block. I believe it was called the C block, and the most yeah. it's the highest security block. Oh sure, yeah. And um, I'll tell you, it it wasn't pretty. No. And the it's thing not. was, I, as I understood it, uh, with the sunrise, the uh, the drum beat started. Yeah. And the olulations filled the air. Ooh, the olulations, I like that. The uh, the the Native American tribe would, you know, engage in spiritual activities all day long, which of course involved in olulation and the beating on on, on drums, mm-hmm. bongos, whatever. I think that I'm guessing that my downfall would have been 
about two minutes after that started, I would have woken up, turned around, looked at these guys and said, can you keep it down? I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> you know, spending a little time in prison, uh, I wasn't uh, an inmate, but I used to go visit uh, friends throughout my life, uh, Stillwater and a couple other joints uh, that my friends would put inside. But the amazing thing to me, I, I was always amazed by this. I'd be in the visitor's room, and there'd be other prisoners in there with their visitors, and every time I went to walk behind one of them, they'd push their chair back and block my way. The prisoners would. <laughs> they would every time. So I finally said, what are you doing, you dumb bastard? And he looks at me like, what? I said, what are you doing? He goes, nothing, man. What are you talking about? I said, move your chair. And he goes, why don't you make me? And I said, listen here, Pally, I'm going home. You're not. Move your goddamn chair. I will never forget. That guy looked at me like, oh, I guess you got a point. <laughs> I'm going to be here in a while longer if I keep this up. Yeah, they, even in prison, they're still tough guys. It's hilarious. Well, probably even more so, huh? Yeah, probably. That's just what you were talking about. You know, as one caged heat man to another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a bond there. We got to take a break. Be right back more with Mike Gelfand, Doug Sprinthal, car selling secrets coming up in just a little bit. I mean, we got it all. Cassie's here for Andy. Oh, by the way, I talked to Andy yesterday. Hmm? I might be able to go in about another week. I'm like, oh, for crazy. Oh. Here we. What did you stub your toe? <laughs> we'll be right back right after this. And we are back with stretches picks. You know, Tom, uh, there's a lot of analysis that goes into these picks. Yeah. And uh, I highly recommend betting, of course. I always recommend betting. Yeah, absolutely. So who's winning this thing? The kitties, the pack, the bears, or the purple? None of the above. Those are all the teams in the division. I know that. Well, who's your pick? I'm going with Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. What? It's not a football team. I know, but it's a hell of an HVAC company. They do the most thorough system tune-up in the industry. Sabre is one of the largest Bryant dealers in the state, which means you save. Yep, I'm going with Sabre, Sabre and Bryant, doing whatever it takes to keep you comfortable. It's also the smartest time to call and schedule your furnace tune-up with Sabre. Get the most thorough tune-up in the industry from the people who keep my home comfortable. Oh, uh, one more thing, Tom. What's that? Visit SabreHeating.com. Tom Bernard talking with Brad Huckle and Michael Bilski of North American Banking Company. We've talked a few times over the years about how North American Banking Company has helped local businesses when they're ready for expansion. We love talking about the success of our customers. One example is suburban manufacturing in Monticello. They create innovative products that produce clean, dry air that is needed during the manufacturing process. We recently helped them expand their business. Moving into a new building gave them the space they needed to add new equipment and production lines. We were able to step in quickly and provide the financing they needed when they needed it. When we help businesses like Suburban Manufacturing with their expansion, it's beneficial for our customers, but their growth also creates new jobs in our community. So they make stuff that produces clean, dry air for manufacturing after working with Bilski. Do they breathe easier with their business felt? We certainly hope so, Tommy, and that's no hot air. Nice one. Why not bank with my banker? North American Banking Company, a better banking experience, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. As you know, my friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. 
he didn't stop by simply creating the best pillow, Mike created the new Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable. Mike's Giza sheets come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. The first night you sleep on the Giza sheets, you will never want to sleep on anything else. Giza Dream sheets come in a variety of sizes and colors. Mike's making a special offer for my listeners. You buy one set, get another set absolutely free. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code TOM. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. Call 1-800-516-5146. Use the promo code TOM. Go to MyPillow.com. Make sure you use the promo code TOM. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Mike Gelfin with us. Doug Sprinthal's here. Cassie's here. So, Mike, we are just talking about, um, you know, basketball squads and all that kind of stuff and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Uh so I want to pass on my very quick story. <clears throat> Made the basketball team in eighth grade at St. Anne's over at 26 and Queen in, uh, in North Minneapolis. And I, uh, Doug actually brought this up, uh, that, that you know, he knows someone that doesn't get in the game too much, and that was pretty much me because I was the second tallest kid on the team. I was like six feet tall when I was in eighth grade, but Jim Brown was like 6'3". So tall. you were the enforcer. So that's right. That's exactly. I would I would come in because I was six feet tall and I probably weighed about two ten something like that. Holy even though I was an eighth, I was a big kid. So I would literally just lean on everybody. Yeah, I, they would just have and to. And this care. is in seventh grade. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Yep. I was just wondering because you know in seventh grade I I was four foot six and weighed sixty five pounds. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you would have been my bodyguard. I would have paid you pretty good money. I would have been your bodyguard, but. This is my very quickly my favorite story. So they get the team together. We won the Twin Cities championship against St. Mark's over in St. Paul, and you know we just had a great. Uh, and again, whenever I went in, I think I shot twice and probably missed the backboard both times. But uh, yeah, my job was to hang on people and tire them out. So Jim Brown would come in and just kick the piss out of them because he was already a half a foot to a foot taller than they were, and they were tired and he wasn't right. So. Uh, the head coach was also our eighth grade teacher, right? Real nice guy. Really, really nice guy. So the Monsignor's there. Uh, both priests are there. All the nuns are there. All the parents are there, right? This is a Catholic school in North Minneapolis. And he goes on the team and he goes, Mr. Ebert was his name. Great guy. Just a really good guy. So Coach Ebert goes, uh, let me just point you guys out one by one. Jim Brown, we couldn't have asked for a better center. I mean, my God, the size of you, and, and as an eighth grader, you were so dominant. I mean, this a lot of a lot of this the trophy goes to you, man. This you were you were amazing. Guy Laurent, uh, power forward, uh, guy, unbelievable. You just played very well, scored. Bob Tyson, our uh, guard, bringing that ball down the court. It always got down the court safely. You did an amazing job. Tom Bernard, a pause. This is true. He goes, Tom Bernard, Jesus Christ. <laughs> right in front of the parents, the nuns, the priests, the oh. archbishop, or whatever the hell he was. He goes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I lipped People off in ninth grade practice. I, I lipped off in ninth grade practice. 
And the coach called me a pseudo intellectual, and you know what was really sad about that? He didn't know what it meant. I had to go home and look it up. Oh, you had to look it up. I was in ninth grade. Well, the, yeah, pseudo intellectual, yes, right, yeah. I thought he didn't know what it no. meant. I think he knew exactly what it meant. <laughs> but yeah, Mike, it was. Uh, I, let me put it this way: They don't have a picture of me hanging at the school, saluting my basketball career at Saint Anne's. Although it's not even it's not even a Catholic school anymore. I think it's it might be a Hmong school now. I think. Huh. I think it, that's what it is. I know there are, the, the church does Hmong services. That I know. So I'm assuming that's what the deal is. But ah, uh, what a life, Mike! What a life! That's all I have to say. It's uh, it's been remarkable, and uh, you know I think uh, it, it's it sounds like you were basically identified as a troublemaker right from the start. Uh, kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> so, what know. they didn't tell you was that was that uh, being a troublemaker was going to make you a very successful person. Well, I suppose, yeah, that's true. I, they didn't realize that I developed my trouble making it a, so I didn't have to ever get a real job. <laughs> so that was good. I mean, that part of it was good. You know, and I, to tell you the truth, I don't know where that even came from. I think my Uncle Augie, he was the one that was thrown off the building to his death. Mm-hmm. So he, he, oh, learned, yeah. he learned how to uh, smart off the So I learned a lot from, well, this is a podcast. I can use this very quickly. You're going to have to edit it out. But my Uncle Augie, who, who died at 39 because he was thrown off a building to his death. Gee, I wonder what he did. <laughs> but he's at our house for my seventh birthday. Nice guy. Very handsome guy. He's like 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, real smart guy. Very handsome guy. Just real slick. But, I mean, he was... I mean, it wasn't mafia level, but he was one of those people, right? <laughs> he had connections. So he goes, hey, Tommy. I said, yeah, Uncle Augie. He goes, what time is it? I said, I don't know, Uncle Augie. And he goes, well, why don't you call time on a telephone? Remember you could go FE 59000? Sure, federal 59000, when you could get the time and the temperature. <laughs> so I call federal 59000, and I listen, and I go, thank you, and hang up. Now, this was a recorded message. Yeah. But I'm a right. seven-year-old kid. I don't know. I'm seven, right? Yeah. So I said, thank you, and I hang up. He goes, what the hell did you tell her thank you for? I said, well, I just, you know, I wanted to be polite. And he goes to a seven-year-old kid, it's a recording. Tell her to go fuck herself. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really, Uncle Good advice. Pretty smooth, don't you think, Mike? Uh, and, of course, you... you took that as gospel. Yes, I did, because <laughs> I did, did it the rest of my life. I've been telling people to go fuck right. themselves. <laughs> it, all, it all goes back to your uncle. It all goes back to Uncle Augie. He gave your life motto. <laughs> he did. I have, I have a motto in my life because of my uncle. God, I miss him, though. God, he was so funny, and he's an amazing guy. How would you like to have had that job? Being a mafia guy? No. At the tone, the time will be twelve oh one. Will be actually, I did at do the that. Tone, the I did that in several really? markets. Yeah, I did in several markets. The time is twelve fifty one. Yes, I did that many many That's years. The ultimate voiceover gig, huh? Oh God, things like that. Yeah, because they had to pay you a lot of money to say all those numbers. I'll tell you that. Now, when did you start? Uh, when did you start your disc jockey gig? First one I had, I was 17 years old. I worked at KDAN over in St. Paul, 1370 AM, and the station's not even on the air anymore. KDAN was a, now imagine this. Now you have to also understand, when I first started in radio, that I mumbled a lot. Because mm-hmm. my original voice was not this voice. My original voice was like this. 
Oh, what are you going to do today? You're going to go somewhere? You want to go have lunch or something? I literally mumbled. That's You're what I did. You're a cool cat. My brother Tony still talks like that. Mm-hmm. I see Tony. Hey, Tony. I said, what'd you say? He says, well, I'm just asking how you I said, what? He goes, God damn it. Because <laughs> you can't understand them. Yeah. So they can't understand me either, but... Uh, so very quickly, and I can't use all the language. Uh, sure but, you can. Oh, no, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a country western station. And I go on and do the first break. Here's Dolly Parton and Porter Wagoner or whatever that <laughs> was, right? I'm doing that, right? The phone lights up. I mean, every line's lit up. Oh, my God. I'm like, they love me. <laughs> it's going to be the greatest of all time. I answer the phone, K-D-A-N. Yeah. Do me a favor. Get that big N off the air. <laughs> oh. I thought I was, they all thought, every caller thought I was black and wanted me to be fired. No, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, Why well. Why don't you just spin some Charlie Pride? I should have but done a little, <laughs> spin a little Charlie Pride. That would have been a good idea. Oh, that was one of Toots' favorites. You know what I was thinking about? Uh, you know, I started out a while ago on the show, and I'll, I'll do this some other day, but I started out, uh, thinking about the Rolling Stones concert a couple weeks ago and how it led yeah. to my recent injury, but as I say, that's for another time. But wait, wait, wait! Sure you... Larry Nines <laughs> want to know, Mike. Well, it's just you know we got to keep things moving, and uh, oh, well. and I'm not necessarily good at that. But um, I was thinking about the Stones concert at the Met Center and thinking you were probably there, right? Uh, I was absolutely, and. Uh, and I was there. I was working as a reporter. And um, did you get uh, tear gassed? That was like 35 years ago, though, wasn't it, Mike? How many I think years it was ago? longer than that. Might have been 40 years ago. Yeah, you might be right about yeah. it. Oh, God, you know what? I think you're right. I bet you that was 40 years ago. Yeah. Oh, and, and they were tear gassing people. There was what was described as a riot. Oh, yes, and I do remember that, yep. And this was this was the concert that Stevie Wonder was the opening act. Yep. And he played like a twenty-minute drum solo to begin. And uh, you know, if you hadn't didn't have a headache before, you would have had one after that. Especially <laughs> here's, here are people who've been tear gassed, and now they were subjected to a twenty-minute drum solo, oh. and they wanted to see the Rolling Stones, and it was it was pretty awful. So anyway. Uh, I make my way in there after covering the scene outside, and the photographer that the newspaper had sent over, a guy named Dom Black, he was he was a good photographer, and I didn't know him well at all, but he was a good photographer, but he was one of those guys who just always looked dyspeptic, if you know what I mean. Sure. Kind of a grimace, and, and obviously he was not happy being there at all. This was not his thing. So the concert starts up, Jagger's dancing around the stage, and they're playing Satisfaction and uh, or something like that. And, he, and Don Black comes over to me, and he's kind of shouting in my ear so I can hear him, and he's got this look of pain about him, and he says, Which one is Jagger? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think thing. they sent the wrong guy over. Yeah, he might not know what he was talking about. Is that what you're thinking? You know, I, 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 I did kind of think that, and uh, I, I, don't, I think that was actually the, the only thing close to a conversation I ever had with him. Really? I think so, yeah. I suppose it's an outside deal. Um, 
I there were two concerts, Mike, and it, it was one of the two. It was nineteen seventy eight or nineteen eighty one? So yeah, it had to be seventy eight. I think yeah. it was seventy eight, seventy seven, seventy eight, something like that. I think so you're absolutely. I, right. I have a question. How do you get a job as a photographer for a newspaper? And isn't your job to know who celebrities and stars and people are? <laughs> you would think. You would think so. Now, of course, it's a lot easier today. You just go online. That, that's true. Right, this would have right. required some tireless research. You mean some work? <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of but, work. But, you know, he might, have, he might have been busy that day. I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of a funny question for many, many reasons. Uh, I could see that. But thanks a lot for bringing up a concert I went to 45 years ago. Mike, thanks a lot. Appreciate hey, it. Hey, the memories. Memories hey, are great, aren't they? Yeah, that was my first year in the record business, matter of fact, 1977. I just That's got probably why you, uh, you probably had good tickets. Oh, God, we had great tickets, absolutely. Remember, there was, a big, there was a big runway that Mick Jagger would walk out into the crowd. Remember that? There was a big runway. Yeah. Yeah, I was sitting right next to that runway. It was pretty damn cool, actually. I would have loved to have seen Stevie Wonder, actually. I do, wouldn't not want to have seen a 20-minute drum solo no, by him, though. No, no. Like, you wrote a fair number of good songs, and you can sing a little bit. Maybe you could do that. I love Stevie Wonder. Yeah, he's terrific. Indeed. Yeah, the, the drum solo, maybe not so much. but Yeah. 20 minutes, Mike. Yeah. 20 minutes. It just went on and on, and, and uh, the crowd wasn't receptive. It, uh, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate. Um, I was going to go see the Stones when they were here a couple weeks ago, but um, I don't know. There's something about being in an arena with 45,000 people that just doesn't appeal to me right really? now. It's hard no. to believe, Mike. <laughs> hard to believe. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Who would have thought it? They didn't sell that show out. Did you know that? I did not know that. I guess I heard that. Yeah, no shows. Are well, I can out. understand. There, there are a few people, especially Stones fans who have been Stones fans for forty or fifty years. I went to a concert a couple years ago, just before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The last concert I was at, and I, and I don't mean the most recent. It was the last concert. Right. And uh, so I was, I was, uh, I was looking forward to it. It was uh, Jason Isbell and the Four Hundred Band. He's tremendous act and um but what i didn't realize was this was at the palace theater in st paul mm -hmm. oh sure yeah and and what i didn't realize was that uh, i was going to have to stand for three and oh, a half hours you weren't up in the i've i've done that too and I, I i'm obviously a lot taller than you are but i still don't tolerate standing on concrete very well oh. for hours no and it was it was body to body out there in the uh, floor, ish. and naturally, naturally, I had you know, like like on, on my right, there was a guy wearing a heavy plaid shirt who had obviously just eaten an Italian meal just before coming. <laughs> oh, no, how would you know garlic. that, Mike? Because the garlic smell. Oh, um, and, sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then his girlfriend was with him. The guy in front of me, of course, was about six seven, so I couldn't see. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's something about that where they look, to, you know, they want to stand in front of the shortest guy there. It's a state and, law, actually. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, I think so, yeah. And and the woman, the woman next to me, she's, uh, she was singing along. I don't understand this, Tom. I don't understand why pe you could do that at home. That's you know? true. Why and, would you come? And so there's an intermission, finally an intermission, there's crowds a little quieter and i look over at her and i show her my ticket and, and i said can you help me i'm she says what and i said well i'm looking at this ticket 
and it's confusing to me. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I don't see your name on it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that went well. Yeah, she didn't, uh, she didn't suggest we get together for coffee or a drink afterwards. You know, Mike, part of the reason the Stones might not have been fully attended is the age of the crowd. Have you ever watched Portlandia? Right. Uh, yep, I've watched it. Mike, have you ever seen that show? Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. There's a great episode where it's a bunch of middle-aged people tailgating before Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion, <laughs> and they fall asleep in the parking lot and don't make it into the show. <laughs> well, yeah, that'll could happen. Have. Well, this is, okay, so just give me a minute, and I'll tell you what, what I was going to say earlier. And that is, because of the Stones concert, I'm in a little pain. What happened was I, I couldn't go. I just I just couldn't go and be there with 45,000 people. But right, right. I kind of got into it, you know, and, and I've kind of been, I don't mean this, it's not a pun, I, but I've been kind of in a Stones jag ever since, got it? So you get it, jag, so, get it? So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Cassie, it's so, a play um, on Mick Jagger. That's what he's talking yeah, about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm figuring I'm much younger than Jagger, right? If he right, can absolutely. do it, I can do it. Sure. So I'm blasting, I'm blasting my my mix my mix CD, while I'm uh, you know doing stuff around the house, and I'm grooving. I admit it. You you can you can probably appreciate. I kind of break out into a little dance routine. Sure, sure. You know, <laughs> because I'm that kind of guy, and I'm grooving to satisfaction, brown sugar, which to this day I think is a song about a sweetener, and uh, <laughs> yes. You know, let's spend the night together. Then then I hit Jumpin' Jack Flash. Okay. Now, I can't help but do the Jagger thing. Now, I'm dancing around the house to Jumpin' Jack Flash. And as I'm doing this, uh, you know, kind of moving from room to room, I, I almost step on my cat. So Ooh. I swerve to avoid Ooh. the cat. My hip, my hip uh, uh, collides with the rocking chair. And then I fall, and I step directly on the defibrillator. Now my ankle's in bad shape, so I go to the Minute Clinic, where, of course, there's a three-hour wait, right? Somewhat ironic, don't you think? Yeah. It's the Minute Clinic. Minute, yeah, Minute Clinic. There's nothing to do with that. I time. go to the ER instead now. I figure that might be better. That's, that's about a two-and-a-half-hour wait, and, and I'm in the waiting room there with people who are, you know, probably really, really sick. And I finally get into the triage room, and... Uh, the doctor says, uh, well, uh, uh, have you, uh, do, do you think you, you might have been exposed to anyone with COVID in the last 10 days? I said, how about the last two hours? <laughs> and? Said, yeah, I guess you got a point there. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Ah, <laughs> oh, God, unbelievable. So we only got about four minutes left in this uh, segment, Mike, so I want to get your attention. Now, what, what I said about the elections uh, across the country was, uh, you know, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, but I, I like the fact that we're kind of moving toward the middle again. If we can just get both sides to move toward the middle, that would be really, really nice. Uh, do, you have, do you have a takeaway from anything that happened on uh, Tuesday? Well, I don't think there's a middle. Oh, God. See, that's the problem, Mike. There, there probably isn't a middle, so we could invent one, maybe. Right. Well, maybe someday, but probably not. No, um, I, I think that I, I think the trend is kind of irreversible, but oh, you know, I'm, I hope I'm wrong. Things were kind of nice uh, back. You know, I was when I was born in the '50s. 
Uh, of course, I wasn't too much aware of politics then, but reading about it and looking back, those were days when party affiliation was not such a big thing, and, and right. ideology wasn't even such a big thing. Right. You know, uh, Eisenhower was president in the early 50s, and uh, early to late 50s, and, you know, Eisenhower, he, when he decided to run for president, he didn't even know whether he was going to run as a Republican or a Democrat. Right, right. And so, you know, that couldn't happen today. That, that, that just couldn't happen. So I don't know. The pendulum seems to be swinging back. And, um, but I do think it's a little too early to, to say that the uh, Republicans are going to sweep in the uh, off-year election. Well, I, yeah, I, I think mean, it's, it's another year. Yeah, I think they're in good, pretty good shape, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I think the Democrats... Biggest problem is that they're being—they're kind of being sabotaged from within right now. I mean, on, yes. the, on the federal level, they are, yes. And and but locally, of course, uh, I think Jacob Fry represents a, a pretty much—he's pretty much represents the middle, certainly in the context of of Minneapolis politics. I, I think so. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, I've never met him, but I know a bunch of people that know him, and they really like the guy. I don't know, like I don't know anything about him. I saw a really yeah, interesting I, I, interview on so. the morning KSTP, I think, morning TV. It was a black guy in a barbershop, probably our age, roughly, in his 60s. And they were talking about uh, the person that won in the 4th District that's for more you know, police protection and so right, on and so right. forth. And he goes, you know, you got to understand, there's a paradox. We are inordinately picked on by the police. Uh, but we're also inordinately murdered by our neighbors. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. And it's like, yeah, I'm glad. He, I'm glad that you actually said that. That's so, because it's not a simple solution. It's not a simple yeah. solution. But we have to do something about crime. And I don't give, give a damn what your skin color is. We gotta back off on this crime thing, man. It's way. Yeah, out it's line. going on all across the nation. It is. Yeah. There's no question. And it's, about it's one more reason why, the uh, especially for men. Why life expectancy has just plummeted since the pandemic yes, started. It has, for, especially for men. You're right about that. Yeah. I have not run into anything. People I know have been running it, you know, to run into this deal and that deal. I, I, I don't think I've had any problem with anybody as far as, you know, acting up during the pandemic and all that stuff. Now, Catherine, we have one minute I got to tell you. My lovely wife, I adore her found out from a neighbor that uh, somebody was tailgating the piss out of Catherine. Mm -hmm. Catherine mm -hmm. locked him up, got out of the car, went back, get the hell out of the car right now. <laughs> and this person's looking at her, and she goes, I said, get out of the car. I said, well, honey, you're not George Foreman. You want to calm down? Right? <laughs> you want to take it easy? Yeah, apparently she didn't like being tailgated too much. She got very pissed off. I've like, driven with your wife a couple times, and she is the road rage queen. It's so funny because, you know, she's so generally easygoing about yes. life. But Yes. I know she just looks so pleasant innocent. Yeah. <laughs> we were Get out of the car. Treasure Island to go into dinner, and some guy in a $10 Corolla cut her off. And <laughs> I thought she was going to explode. Oh, yeah. Gonna... All I can say is I would not recommend that in this day and age as a form of conflict resolution. No. Yes, I would agree with you 100% on that one. <laughs> we'll take a break. Be right. What's coming up next, Doug? Katie Richter with Car Selling Secrets. She is in the lobby. You don't know that for sure. I do, too. I've been texting. What do you think I've been doing? I've been doing my job, we'll mister. Be back. Doing we'll my job. Car Selling Secrets up next. <laughs> 